in Acts chapter 12 is what we're going to be considering. Uh, we're going to be really looking at a story that Luke places right into the middle of the narrative of Acts to remind us that the God that we're dealing with is a sovereign God. That there have been many points in church history uh, where it seems as if the church was about to be snuffed out. That the powers of the world systems, the dominions of darkness, uh, would actually have the ability to snuff out God's work. Luke places this story which is really the closing narrative of Peter's role in the book of Acts. We'll see him one more time in chapter 15 when Paul is opposing him for playing the hypocrite um, and collapsing under the pressure of those Christian Judaizers. Uh, but, but here uh, we see um, Peter kind of uh, in this final narrative uh, before, we sh- before Luke switches to uh, focus on the Apostle Paul. Um, as the gospel goes forth into the Gentile world. This is a powerful story of of when the church comes under incredible persecution um, and it seems like the church and its existence is being threatened. Luke gives us a picture of the calmness under pressure that the church maintains and that calmness is directly linked to the church's calm confidence that God is sovereign and that nothing can stop him from fulfilling his redemptive purposes and plans uh, in human history. Now, I want to begin before we jump into the text to actually, once again, define for us what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. Because saying that God is sovereign does not mean that everything that happens is determined by God's divine decrees, as if God has some sort of secret mean streak, as if everything we do is by automata. Uh, that is not what I mean by sovereign. I think what the biblical writers mean when they talk about God's sovereignty is that God is absolutely free, the only one who is truly free. And his freedom is not to do whatever he wants, but it is a freedom to do whatever he wants in accordance with his character, his purposes, and his plans. In other words, God is telling a redemptive story. He is the author of his story, and he will fulfill his story. Now, where does that leave human responsibility? And I think that, um, I think that Dags Hammer, uh, Hammerskold, uh, one of my favorite uh, writers who wrote this beautiful devotional uh, called Markings, uh, once said, we are not permitted to choose the frame of our destiny, but what we put into it is ours. And I think that this is important for us to understand because what we have to see when we read this narrative is it tells us something really profound about human existence. You know, it was Karl Marx who said that religion is the opiate of the people. And that may be true of religion, but that is not true of Christianity. For Christianity has always maintained a very healthy understanding um, and a healthy grounding in the reality of suffering. That suffering is the incontrovertible truth of existence. It's inescapable. I suffer just sitting alone with myself every day. Okay? To exist is to suffer. Now, and we suffer at the hands of our, of our own making. We also suffer at the evil that is brought upon us by others. We suffer in a world that is filled with suffering. And Christians' responsibility is never to answer the mystery of suffering because what we have at the center of suffering is a God who suffers. 
a God who enters into human suffering and degradation and takes it into himself and makes it his own. I think it's foolish for us to try to explain the enigma of suffering. What I think we have the absolute responsibility to declare is that God has not left us alone in our suffering, but has entered into it and made it his own. As Dorothy Sayers said, whatever game God is playing, he has taken his own medicine and played fair. And I think that that's a very important truth for us to understand. I think the other reality is that one of the challenges for us as Christians, and when we read this narrative, is that we focus in on the suffering of particular players within the story, and we think of it as unfair. And I believe the reason that we hold that kind of grid is because we as American Christians function under a faulty premise. And it is a premise that is given to us by our forefathers. And I think it's the worst thing in our founding documents. And that is the right of every American to the pursuit of what? Happiness. How is happiness something that is actually even maintainable? It isn't. Happiness is something that comes as the consequence of particular things in life, but it, takes, it does not take into consideration the fact that every one of us will lose someone that we love. It doesn't take into consideration that we will enter times of illness where we will experience losses of jobs. It doesn't, it doesn't take into consideration the violation of friendships that happens or the demise of a marriage. It doesn't take into consideration all of those things. And to build our life upon the idea that we are here to be happy is a false reality that can only lead to even greater levels of despair. I think that the most honest approach to life is that Jesus never promised us a life without suffering. He just simply promised that he would never leave us nor forsake us, that he would be with us in the midst of that suffering. The ability of the early church fathers to maintain faith in the midst of trial and tribulation was the firm belief that Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary actually determined a future that could not be defined by the suffering in the present. And that is that Jesus overcame the devil, the dominions of darkness in this world system. No matter what the narrative seems to be painting for us, no matter how dark the days get, we must hold to the fact that Christ is victor. And we have to believe that God's purpose, he said, I did not come into the world to judge it, but I came to save it. That if I be lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself. And so with that being said, let's look at Acts chapter 12. So if I can get the first slide up. So we begin with the baptism of James. It says, about this time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So here the church comes under violent oppression, uh, and he says he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. So James is decapitated. Uh, James, one of the sons of thunder. Uh, John, who gave us the gospel of John, as well as first and second, third John, as well as Revelation. Uh, Here we have his brother being put to death by Herod. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, notice his He was far more interested in the praise of men than God. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And we'll consider that later. But so here we have Herod. And this Herod is Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, who we find at the birth of Jesus, who put to death 
uh, all the children in Bethlehem. So just know that the Herods that we find in the New Testament are generally never good guys. Uh, in fact, they, I think, fulfill the very word of John when he says that the Antichrist is coming and even now the spirit of Antichrist has come. That, this is, that Herod often represents, he becomes even a type of the opposition, the dominions of darkness, darkness and the opposition against the gospel of God. And here we see Herod who seems to be bringing destruction to the church. He kills James and arrests Peter with the intent of killing him. And I think the reason that it is for us that we have to actually take into consideration the the fact that throughout church history, there have been incredible seasons of persecution and suffering for following Jesus. Uh, and, And it calls us to ask ourselves, do we have the courage to stand in the gap and continue to bear witness to the reality of Jesus? Because what we have here is the baptism of James. And what I mean by that is the very words that Jesus spoke over James. Because immediately we ask the question, well, why did God deliver James over to death uh, and allow Peter to be delivered. Is James more important than Peter? No. Peter himself was crucified upside down later. So he just got to suffer longer than James, really, is the, is the reality. But how is it that, that, that the church traditionally throughout its history has always exploded under its deepest persecution? And I think of the very scene in which John and James and their mother comes to Jesus. You remember this story. It, it, we have one of, the, uh, one of the times it's told is in Mark chapter 10. And, and the, the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and says, Can you allow one of my sons to sit at the right hand of you in the coming kingdom? And he says, That's not mine to give to you. But he says, Are you able to drink of the cup that I'm going to drink? What cup is Jesus talking about? It's the cup of suffering. And that cup, he drinks it to the dregs. So I say, what makes Christianity unique is that at its very heart, we have a God who suffers. And doesn't just suffer, but he who knew no sin became sin. He suffers the degradation of human wickedness. And he says, are you able to drink that cup? He goes, or be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And they're like, of course. And he goes, it's true. That's exactly what will happen to you. Now, they didn't realize until after his death and resurrection, and probably not even until after his ascension and the the filling of his spirit, did they begin to comprehend, oh man. You know, that's why we say like, aren't you glad that Jesus says, follow me, and doesn't tell us where he's going. Because honestly, had he told any of the disciples where they were going, they were like, I mean, it sounds awesome to follow the Messiah. Come, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, and you're going to die horribly painfully. Like, he just leaves that out. Kind of, it's a bit of a trickster, that Jesus. Uh, but I think actually Jesus was incredibly upfront about the realities of suffering. He never, in fact, he himself was called the son of sorrows. He never actually tricked them because they witnessed in his own life incredible suffering at the hands of those he came to save. And they saw Jesus say himself to them on the night of his betrayal, listen, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. They will hate you because they hated me first. But be of good cheer for I have what? overcome the world and so james is able to face his death 
by, sword, by the sword with the calm confidence that Jesus has overcome the world no matter what it looks like from this side of eternity. And I think that that's incredibly important for us to understand. So when I say the baptism of James, I am literally talking about the baptism of suffering and death. That the spilled blood of James actually became the means by which the word of God exploded. Tertullian, one of the church fathers who died in 225, said to his enemies, we multiply whenever we are mown down by you, mowed down by you. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. We multiply whenever you mow us down. For the blood of the Christians is the seed of the church. Now this is deeply convicting because one of the great issues that we are confronted with in today's age is an absolute attempt to avoid suffering at all costs. But I think about the amount of suffering we bring to ourselves, upon ourselves. I've been really struck by this. I've been working through in my book club, uh, uh, Carl Jung's uh, book, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, and, and that's created an obsession with Jungian psychology, and that's a whole other story, and I won't bring you down that rabbit trail. But one of the things that he points out is, is how people hit the middle of their lives around my age, and they are confronted with the fact that they have avoided suffering only to create, ultimately, more suffering for themselves. Because to choose the path of least resistance is to allow, as Jung calls it, the shadow self to win. And this is what we do all the time. Isn't isn't that true? We do the thing we ought not to do to protect ourselves from pain only to create even more pain because life is lived best when it's poured out for others. But that's the exact opposite of what our culture promotes. But see, the early Christians understood that God is sovereign, that nothing is going to prevent his redemptive story from being told. It doesn't matter how dark the days are. It doesn't matter what dominions of darkness come against us because Jesus is victor. And if I live with that as my reality, it's not the promise that Jesus is, is going to get me out of every conflict or every affliction, but it is the promise that no matter what affliction I experience, he is with me in the midst of it. This is how it is possible to die well. In fact, I, I love what, uh, what uh, Hammerskold says uh, when he says, do not seek death, for death will find you, but seek the road that makes death a fulfillment. I love that. So profound. What we need to understand is that it is better to suffer for doing good. That's exactly what Peter himself wrote in 1 Peter three seventeen. If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. It is better to suffer for doing good if it should be God's will than for doing evil. I want to just lay out for you a a truth about the very sovereignty of God. And it's it's a word written uh, by, or word given by Jesus himself, referring to himself as the chief cornerstone. In Matthew 21, 44, he refers to himself as the cornerstone and he says, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And the one it falls, if it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Notice he, pro- he provides with us two options. You can either be broken on the stone. That sounds horrible. I mean, neither of those options sound great. I understand that. But actually to be broken is one of the images that is given as a positive in the gospel. That we must, come, we must be reduced to nothing before God can actually make us into the something he 
intends us to be. We must, we must die to the lies of who God never intended us to be that we might come alive into the truth of what he expected us to be, of what he desires for us. We have to be broken upon the gospel in order to be made new, but we don't want to be crushed by it. And that's what he says. Like, listen, you can either surrender to the reality of my lordship or you can be destroyed by the rejection of my lordship and accept the consequences. For what are we told in Philippians? That there will be a day when every knee will bow and recognize Jesus as Lord. You'll either recognize him as your Lord and Savior now or you'll experience him in the future as your Lord and Judge. I think it's important to understand that in this life, in the age of grace, that Jesus did not come to bring judgment to the world, but to save it. And so this is important for us to understand. How do we confront suffering? Suffering has meaning when there's a foundation by which we live our lives. And to try to avoid suffering, to protect ourselves and our own egos, uh, is only to bring about even greater suffering, is to be crushed by the stone. When in reality, when we pour our lives out, when we're broken upon the gospel, we can be poured out for the good of others. And I think that this is the, the beauty. I mean, I'm, I'm struck by this because when I read about James being decapitated um, as a servant of Jesus Christ, and I'm like freaked out when I go to skate church and, and a group of really hip high school kids who don't know Jesus make fun of me and I feel like I just died a thousand deaths. I'm like, I'm so weak. I just went again last week. I've been subjecting myself to skate church once a month. Uh, and it, seriously, I would rather preach to thousands of people than these 30 kids. Because I just walk out and they just all look at me like, you are so dumb. And I'm like, but I haven't even said anything yet, man. I have a gold front tooth. That should be cool enough. What's wrong with you guys? <laughs> you can't win. You can't win. I'm like, try to wear my son's streetwear and all I end up looking like is a, is a middle-aged PE teacher. It's horrible. <laughs> Uh, and so I, I recognize that, that it is important that we suffer for the Lord. And the Lord is using 15-year-old stoner skaters to literally strip me of my ego. Um, it's amazing. Enter into that baptism. And what I mean by that is great purpose, great calm, great peace comes, not when we try to avoid suffering, but when we give our lives to Jesus and accept that as a part of this existence because it's not the end of the story. We know the end of the story, which is what should give us the confidence to enter into the challenges and the difficulties. Now look at the, the, next, uh, the next section. Because here we see, uh, in contrast to James, uh, to, the, to the death, the execution of James, we see the deliverance of Peter. But there's something really profound about the deliverance of Peter that I think is really beautiful. It says, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. To be sleeping between two soldiers means literally he was handcuffed uh, to two soldiers, which is not a very comfortable way to sleep. Also, keep in mind that Peter has been arrested before, and this time his friend, James, has just been executed. I mean, for most of us, that would unhinge most of you. I promise you that there's not many in this room that would have a good night's sleep knowing what was coming the next day for you. He knew that he was about to be executed, and yet... At the same time, he, he acted, uh, in the words of Dr. Livingston, I am immortal until God calls me home. And therefore, we find Peter sleeping. It's very much a reflection of his own Lord. Remember when Jesus was sleeping in the front of the boat while there was a massive storm and the disciples are freaking out? But Jesus was sleeping. I think Peter here, as a man filled with the Holy Spirit, is able to entrust his life 
to Christ. He has a clean conscience, and that clean conscience allows him to have rest even in the midst of incredible unrest. And so he says, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him. He's so asleep, the angel of the Lord, a light shows in the cell. It doesn't wake him up. And the angel of the Lord literally has to strike him in the side to wake him. And what, what's really fascinating is that Peter's so asleep that he stays in sort of a half-awake uh, mode all the way until he's freed and then realizes he's not having a vision. Uh, and that he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know what was being done by the angel was uh, by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when he had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. So obviously it's a miraculous event. Uh, I, I, don't, I can't explain to you uh, how, how the miracle worked. If I could, it wouldn't be a miracle. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And what were they expecting? They were expecting his execution. And so what I love about this is there, when I see Peter sleeping, I see Peter um, actually abiding in some direct commands that Jesus gave him while Jesus walked with him on the earth. The first thing I see Peter doing in his sleep is I see him resting. And what did Jesus say? And these are words that Peter himself, he took the word of Christ, who is the living word himself, and he actually drew that into, his, into himself by the power of his spirit. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are weary. Come to me, all you who are exhausted by existence, who recognize the inescapable reality of suffering, and I will give you rest. And I think it's important to understand that those who have rest are the ones who in the midst of unrest know themselves to be under care. In other words, rest does not come when we protect ourselves from pain. That actually makes us even more restless. It makes us even more unsatisfied because it's not what you were created for. But the reality is that rest comes in the midst of unrest when we recognize in a time of unrest that we are under his care. Peter knew whose hands he really rested in. He knew that Herod ultimately had no power over him. That even if Herod was to execute him, Christ had conquered death. Oh, death, where is your sting? So important that we hold to a right understanding of God's sovereignty, which means his, his freedom to care for us as broken, sinful people. I think of another phrase that Jesus spoke to his disciples, that they heard him speak in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, when he says, do not worry. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you'll eat or or." What you'll, what you'll wear or where you'll live. Don't you realize that God cares for you? He cares for the sparrows. How much more does he care for you? Don't worry about tomorrow for there's enough problems today. That was the ultimate in paraphrasing the Sermon on the Mount right there. Uh, but the, the concept that the key words are those three words, do not worry. And look at the age in which we live. So much anxiety. How often has anxiety, worry actually prevented you from being generous? I know it's happened to Darcy and I. When we first got saved, I was terrified to give. I'm like, like if we give, we're not going to have enough for 
are fun. <laughs> and so I always have enough to get a coffee, but I don't have enough to give. I, but I, worry often dictates our ability to be useful. And Jesus said, don't worry. I think the problem in the church consists simply in the fact that we have always believed too little. We haven't clung to the promises of Christ. Peter, as a spirit-filled man, is able to sleep in this moment of, of possible execution because he has rest in Christ. He is not worried about, about tomorrow because he knows that his eternity rests in the hands of Christ. And I think of the third words that Jesus gave to his disciple in Matthew ten twenty six: have no fear. Isn't it interesting? Rest, worry, fear. These words, how the disciples did not abide in those statements while he was alive, walking on the earth, but after his resurrection, they became living realities for him as Christ came to abide in them by the Spirit. Um, Karl Barth said this around fear. He said, peace is in danger because there are so few free people. And what he meant by that is that the gospel, is, if it's a gospel of anything, is a gospel of liberation. And the gospel frees us from the paralyzing realities of existence. It allows us to face suffering with a calm confidence that Christ is with me and will never leave me nor forsake me. And so what is Peter's response? I love this because now you see the supernatural and direct connection with the ordinary. God alone does the extraordinary, but his people must do the ordinary. And because the angel tells him, get up quickly, dress yourself and put on your sandals, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And this is exactly what Peter does. In obedience to the divine command, Peter gets up and does what he is told and what he experiences is deliverance. And I think deliverance always comes to, um, to those who are obedient. Deliverance from the tyranny of self is the thing that we find ourselves freed from when we walk in obedience. And are you willing to, to enter in to that intimacy with Christ where he, he alone is allowed to dictate the terms of your activities? I just share with you a story in which I experienced this firsthand. And I wish I had more of these stories, which shows that I still find that I am often trying to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit. But I remember once I was traveling uh, with my band and I had only been a believer for a few years. Uh, and I, I'd stayed the night um, at this airport. We, we, uh, we had a delayed flight and I woke up in the morning and I, I was looking rough. I think I was wearing, like, I'm pretty sure I was wearing just like a wife beater. Uh, is that appropriate to call those t-shirts that? Uh, a, white, a white tank top. I, I'm like, why do we call them that? Is that true that any man that wears that is, is violent? I don't think so. But uh, anyway, I'm wearing a t-shirt. And if anyone looked like that, I did because I was covered in tattoos and I was haggard. And I, I woke up to the sound of a woman crying. And I was trying to sleep. You know, have you tried to sleep on airport chairs and the they're horrible. I was like, I was wrapped around the handle, like where I was like on two seats. And this woman is crying and I, I hear her just like, I mean, just really crying. And then, then her husband is pacing back and forth in front of her on the phone, talking to someone. And he's like, I just can't believe it. I can't believe this has happened to us. Um, and it's just the most horrible thing. And, and I felt the Lord prompt on my heart in that moment to go enter into their suffering. And I'm like, no. Look at me, Lord. I'm not going to go. Like, I will add to their suffering right now. I'm not going to go to their, their suffering. My breath will add to their suffering. I'm not going anywhere near them. And I remember, I like, and I just kept feeling this prompting to go 
to minister to them. And I'm, I'm relatively new. I've been a believer for maybe three years at this point. And so the first thing I did is I took my Bible out. And I just, I walked by them with my Bible. <laughs> Which that, they didn't notice because they were so deep in their suffering. And then I'm like, I... And then I like went and sat by them and opened my Bible in my lap, trying to show them that like I'm really not scary. I'm a God-fearing man, and nothing was working. And, and our flight was about to leave, and I, I realized that I just had to go talk to him. And I walked over to him, and and he had his arm around her, and she was just sobbing. And I just said, "I, you guys, I'm so, I'm so sorry." And I, and I was a, a new pastor, uh, doing this this music gig away from home for a weekend, and and I just walked to him and said. I, I heard, I heard you guys is, were really hurting, and I don't know what's going on, but I just want you to know I'm a pastor, and I want to know if I can pray for you. And they looked up at me, and the woman just looked at me with the most tender eyes, and it was almost like she didn't see me as I was in front of her, which is this haggard, <laughs> tattooed guy. Uh, and she just, she just looked at me with like such, like just such hurt and such longing and such a need for what I was doing. And she said, my, uh, our, our grandson uh, drowned. Uh, was their four-year-old grandson fell off a dock when the dad was un, un, uh, unknowing the boat and he went under the, got swept under the dock and they weren't able to get to him and he drowned. And they were going to comfort the family and they're just in shock. And I was allowed to pray for them. And in that moment... I mean, it was so tragic. It was so heartbreaking. And, and here, what was crazy is that my son was the same age that when this happened. And I was just like, whoa, that's so heavy. And their suffering was so real. But at the same time, God was so real to them in that moment through me. It wasn't because of anything about me. I was, I was still relatively new, new to ministry. But I stepped out in faith and took took. That, that obedient step to ser- uh, simply allow Jesus to minister to them through my presence, my willingness to just simply reach out a hand and say, can I pray for you? And that prayer um, for them, just I could tell that they, for them, they didn't see me. What they saw was as if God had, had reached down and told them in that moment, I'm with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And I just ask you guys the question is that, are you willing to be that kind of conduit for human suffering? I think some, sometimes we're so wrapped up in our own garbage, we're so messed up with our own brokenness that we don't see that God wants to utilize us in spite of ourselves, that he doesn't want this or that part of you. He wants the whole person, the good and the bad, and to be available for him and to have that confidence that Jesus is on the throne and he understands. He can't, I can't explain why the child drowned. But I do believe that Jesus understands that suffering. And because I believe that so fervently, I was willing to enter into that suffering. We can't stand back at a detached distance and think that we're functioning as the church is called to function. May we enter into the brokenness of others. May we be obedient to that angelic vision of Christ. And look what happens now. If we look, consider the, the baptism of James, the deliverance of Peter, let's look at the, the prayer of the church. I think this goes right in hand even with that story. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked, 
At the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. This is one of those, I think, that shows the honesty of Luke's recording this, is that she's so shocked. Just keep in mind what's happening. James has already died. The church is expecting Peter to be executed. But the, the church, by faith, engages in fervent prayer. They never stop praying. They pray without ceasing. They, they are seeking God's hand of deliverance for Peter. Lord, please don't take Peter from us. Deliver him. But notice that they're praying for the very thing that's happening, but when it happens, they don't believe it. I think that's so interesting. This just shows what mixture we are. That, that every honest prayer begins with, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, and, and then look what happens. She says, recognize Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. I mean, we're praying for that, but there's no way. <laughs> uh, but she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, and they're like, and then they're even, even get superstitious about it. They're like, it can't be him, but it must be an angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Peter had to go into hiding at this point because they were trying to kill him. James, the half-brother of Jesus, becomes the new leader in Jerusalem. Peter fades out of the story from this point forward, except for in chapter 15. But I think the real point here is that the community of faith is, is a community that seeks God that believes that God is present, that we're not, we're not like Jacob, where we don't know that God is with us, and all of a sudden we're surprised by that fact, that we are awaiting God to speak to us when he is perpetually speaking to his children, if we would just attune our hearts and our minds to him. The voice of God, it comes to us in a still, soft voice. The issue is not, is God speaking? The issue is that we have not learned to attune the ears of faith to his voice. And I think that one of the great issues that is for us today is that we live in such a materialistic age where everything is external, everything is based upon what can be experienced with the senses, that we have lost our ability to hear that still, soft voice. This is why prayer is such a difficult discipline in the church. We can get people to come and hear a sermon. But if I said, starting next week for the next six months, and please don't mishear me because somehow people always hear like half. For some reason, when we announced a few weeks ago, the, the shift uh, in, in just some of the interior organizational stuff, uh, it still got back, I heard Josh is no longer the lead pastor. I'm like, what, what is happening? How do people not, are they literally just playing game? I don't know what is going on. What I think is that we live in such an cr- incredible age of distraction that our ability to focus in on the things that really matter to actually be able to attune our hearts and our minds to the voice of Christ amongst the millions of voices that are vying for our attention. It has become incredibly difficult. We are so undisciplined uh, in our pursuit of Christ that we cannot figure out why God isn't more real to us. But I promise you, it is He who waits to be wanted. It is He who says that whenever two or more gather in my name, I am there in the midst of them. We talk about Jesus as if He's far away. Maybe I do a disservice when I preach, talk about a Christ who isn't here, but he's present. The only reason I get up and preach to you every week is because I believe he's actually with us. 
because I actually believe that he really did come to seek and save that which is lost, because I really believe that Jesus actually did die and atone for the sins of humanity, that I actually believe that he is the way and the only way, the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. And that calm confidence that Jesus is actually victor over human history, and he will ultimately have the final word, and that he is Lord of lords, whether you recognize him or not, that is the thing that places me in front of you each week and every week. Because it's not necessarily fun, but it is a pleasure and it brings life meaning because to confess Jesus is to confess the truth and you can do nothing for, you can do nothing against the truth as it says in scripture, only for it. To fight against King Jesus, to ignore his command upon our lives, to seek, he says, listen, you know, you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give to those who ask him? The most basic premise of Christian living is that we pray. We offer prayer every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m., and I, and I just come back to that. If I said to you guys right now, hey, we're not, we're not going to do anything for the next six months except seek God's face in prayer. We're not going to give you any sermons until we learn how to pray. Would that kill the church? Would you come back? I think it's interesting that a prayer meeting often means that you can guarantee that it's going to be a small meeting because prayer requires the, act, the action and the activity, the active participation of every person. You can come and listen to That's why people would prefer to watch a movie than read a book because a movie happens for you. It's, 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 passive, it's passive knowledge. It comes to you. You're not having to work for it. But reading requires uh, a whole bunch of other aspects of our consciousness that, that, is, that is harder. It takes more focus. It's, have you ever read and found that like two pages in, you don't remember what the first two pages were? It's just, it's just a different... We have been attuned to receive everything so passively that we don't know how to be active participants in passively receiving God's grace. I think that that's deeply problematic. What we see here... Paul's very words, and everything let your request be made known to God. If I could just read to you a quote from Karl Barth on prayer. He says, that is the open door to the beautiful paradise. It's not as if God needed to have us tell him that shadows torment us, but that we, like children, may take it to him in order to talk with him about everything that concerns us, large things and small things, important things and unimportant things, smart things and dumb things. The question is, is do you take the time to talk with God? I think it takes effort to develop a relationship with anyone. It's no less difficult to develop a relationship with the living Christ. But here's the thing. He's, he's actually given us the tools to commune with him by placing his spirit within us. It's just the question of have we actually given the time to develop that relationship? And so I encourage you. I'm not telling you that we're not, I'm not going to preach for the next six months. I was using that example. Please don't post that or spread that as a, as a, as a faulty rumor, although it's... I'm tempted now. Um, The contrarian in me is extremely tempted. Uh, Closing, let's look at the judgment. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So notice, first, the judgment comes against Herod's, uh, against those who were holding Peter in jail. To lose a prisoner mean that you, would to be, you were to be executed for that loss. And so God actually exercises 
his judgment of the evil deeds of Herod uh, through Herod, just as he does in the Old Testament. Often God uses, I, I think it's interesting in Isaiah, how he refers to Cyrus as his anointed one, uh, that he utilizes, uh, and this is God's ability, this shows his sovereignty or his providence over human history, God not being responsible uh, for the evil, but actually has the ability to fulfill his redemptive purposes through it. And I think that this is one of those realities where human sin in its essence is human arrogance. It involves human deeds that do not correspond to the divine deed in Jesus Christ, but contradict it. And that's exactly what Herod goes on to do. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded the coolest name in the New Testament, Blastus. I never noticed that before. Persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Ouch, that's so intense. Uh, you know what's fascinating is, uh, is in regards to this, is that this was actually recorded, that his death, uh, his death was recorded by Josephus as actually receiving some sort of stomach illness, an illness of the bowels that killed him within, within four days um, of this event. And so even, uh, even Josephus uh, shares the exact same information um, about Herod. But I think what's important to, uh, to recognize is we often see Herod as like this kind of anti-type of Christ or or the spirit of Antichrist at play. But we, it's important for us to recognize our own temptation or tendency to place ourselves upon the throne of our own hearts. And to recognize, to exalt ourselves to a place we may not be struck with, uh, with the, a divine judgment that, that we are eaten from the inside out by worms, uh, which is pretty disgusting. But what is that a picture of? It's a picture of interior deterioration. It's a picture of death on the inside. And that is what always happens when we exalt ourselves to the center of our own existence. There is nothing but deterioration and greater torment that comes from that. We create hell for ourselves on earth all the time. We need to understand that. But I think what's also important for us to note about this is that judgment does come to Herod by the hand of God himself. Notice how the church responds. I think this is really important for us to understand because we live in an age in which the church often spins its wheels judging those outside of it. And we shouldn't be. In fact, Paul says, don't judge those outside of the church. If you were to go around judging those outside of the church, we wouldn't have a mission, which is to bring the gospel, the good news to those outside. Jesus said, I didn't come to, ch- to judge the world, I came to save it. Judgment, actually, it says, begins within the household of God. And in our judgment within the household, keep in mind, we must tread very carefully when we talk about judgment even within the church, because judgment within the church has to do with a familial reality in which we as a family are holding each other accountable to the truth in love. That doesn't mean we're going around beating each other over the head for our sins. But it's a community where we have the comfort to be able to speak truth to one another, to confess our brokenness to one another, to experience the healing of God's grace together. The church, the early church did not fight the opposition against it by violence. 
the early church submitted to God's sovereign hand and recognized that even if the world is to come fully against the gospel, nothing could snuff out the victory of Jesus. And then in fact, the actual opposite occurs. Every time the gospel came under oppression, it exploded. And so we close with the providence of God. Notice, it begins with a threat to the, to the gospel and it ends with the gospel going forth. But the word of God increased and multiplied. What is the word of God for us? I would argue that the word of God is the very thing that Paul said when he said, we preach Christ and him crucified. To make sense of suffering in the world, we cling to the hope that we have of a God who entered fully into our suffering and made it his own. That Jesus Christ, as, as Peter himself reflecting on probably this event, suffered once for sins that he might bring many to God. The righteous for the unrighteous. That Jesus is both the judged and the judge in our place. That the gospel, the news, the word that spread was the word of God's grace toward us in Christ. And how do you define that grace? What is it that spreads about the gospel? And I would just remind you, the very foundation of being able to endure the challenges of existence is clinging to this truth, that grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. That grace is love coming at you and has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are absolutely unlovable. The gospel is not good advice about what you should do, but it is good news about what has already been done for you. And that is the word that spreads when God's people enter into the suffering of the world, knowing that Jesus Christ is victor. Be bold and courageous to spread the word of God and leave the outcome to him. Amen?